This is Kevin. And this is Ron. And this episode of Your Valuable Home is brought to you by Provia. Provia, a faith-based company that makes entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood-clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone, and metal roofing, all of incomparable quality. Welcome to Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast for listeners who believe that residential real estate is the way to build wealth. Hi, I'm Kevin Kennedy, a working contractor and host of Your Valuable Home. Your Valuable Home is for homeowners and investors alike who want to acquire and improve real estate based upon educated decisions. And I'm Ron Milk, Your Valuable Home producer and co-host. Our weekly one-hour podcast is not about doing it yourself. It's about hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. And it's not about flipping. It's about buying and holding to build wealth. Homeowners and investors who strive to create wealth and financial freedom with real estate and avoid costly home improvement mistakes. Your valuable home is for you. The Project Replay made redoing our kitchen and bath trouble-free. Your horror stories have kept us from hiring the wrong contractors. The college segments have taught us how to keep toxins out of our home, what to look for in replacement windows, how to borrow sensibly against home equity, and more. College teaches investors like me how to freshen up my rentals without spending a fortune. Their suggestions are great for ROI. It's time for Your Valuable Home. Hey, we've got a really interesting show today, and we're going to lead with Nisi talking about a roof, right? Yeah, just it's okay. a quick thing talking about roofs because a lot of people need them. A lot of people can go through new roofs. So Nisi, why don't you tell us why you needed a new roof, and then we'll get into the real big part, which is the horror story. So I needed a new roof because my home is 25 years old, and I noticed a wet spot in one of my guest bedrooms. And when I had somebody go up into my attic, they told me that I had a leak from the roof. The person that went up there told me I needed a new roof, but I shouldn't get a new roof right now. I should wait for a big storm to come. Uh Oh, I I, I know where this is going. Insurance fraud? Oh, yeah. A lot of people have been doing this. See, what people don't understand is that the insurance is there for accidental. It's not for maintenance. So usually homes that are about 25 years old probably need a new roof. It depends on the quality of the product that you're purchasing from the beginning. If you get a really good product, that's going to last 50 years. If you get the Provia metal roof, you're never going to need to do one again. It all depends on what you're going to be looking for and how long you're going to be in the home, plus the look of it. So when the roof was starting to show signs of getting wet, was it increasing every time or was it increasing after the person went up on the roof to check your roof out? It actually increased after that. Never thought of that. Now that you ask me that way. It's one of the biggest things that I get threatened the most of is exposing a lot of the roofers for what they're doing is called insurance scamming. Saying you have damage in the house and there could be more damage. I'm not accusing anybody, but I know people got caught doing it. We stay away from it, but we're here to educate our homeowners that if you do know about it and that roofer's doing it, uh, it's not a good thing to have because insurance fraud is a real bad thing to do. All right, Nisi, as we're continuing with your horror story, I know you had a little bit of a tough time with the roofer that uh, did the work there. And I know there's a little bit of the shorts issues. Tell us your quick story about what were the problems. So it began as I had some serious issues going on and I had a leaky uh, ceiling in my, one of my bedrooms. And then the person that was the roofer had come in with a quote and I thought it was extremely high. And I said, that's crazy. I talked to a neighbor. The neighbor told me what they had paid. It was significantly lower. So the roofer, who was supposedly a very good friend of mine, I questioned why the amount was what it was. And he said to me, it's because of everything after COVID, the prices had spiked. And I said, well, I mean, I understand because I've seen prices spike everywhere else. However, that was not very true. 
And then I actually stumbled upon, I had a contractor friend had come by, said, oh, I see you did your roof. Could I ask you what you paid? I told him what I paid. He said, that's crazy. I do roofs. Didn't know that. And then I started to look into more. I did notice that my insurance company, he insisted on speaking to my insurance company. So I didn't know anything. I, I don't know how the process was done. And I trusted him. So I allowed him to do so. When the insurance company sent out a claims adjuster, they came up. The roofer sent me inside the house so he could handle it man to man with the person that went on my roof. And they proceeded to spend two hours on my roof talking to one another. And then they came down, they came up with their price. The next thing I know, the claims went through, everybody agreed, and I was slated to have the roof replaced. Unfortunately, he decided, unbeknownst to me, he decided that not, obviously I needed the repairs done on the ceiling in the bedroom, that I knew about. And then he told me that there was damage done to some siding on the house. I didn't notice. I don't know. I can't see it. I don't really actually sometimes know what I'm looking at. But these two decided that that needed to be done. Then what happened was he fraudulently sent in paperwork telling my insurance company that the work was completed when it in fact had not been completed. The entire process was behind my back. I don't even know what you speak about for two hours on top of the roof. It's a roof. Yeah, I don't, I don't, Baseball, I don't think I could stand on a roof for two hours. You know, uh, stuff like that. Yeah. Well, you know what it was when part of the segment that we were talking about when contractors up on your roof, you don't know what's going on. She said she's never been up there. She doesn't get up there. It's too dangerous. He sent me inside the house. He sent me back inside so they could talk man to man. With the insurance, he was putting claims in for insurance damage and for the siding and never did it because there was no damage. Is that correct? I don't know. I'm not saying there wasn't damage, but he told the insurance company that he replaced it and he never did. And then he proceeded to say to me that, and then I had spoken to an adjuster after the fact. He was not my adjuster. It was just a state licensed certified adjuster. He did not work on for me. I did not pay him. And he took a look at the paperwork and he tried to explain that this was fraudulent, that he was breaking the law. He couldn't tell me that my insurance premiums weren't going to go up, yet he swore that they wouldn't. Oh, by the way, they did. And he also told me that this was going about was completely incorrect. So then the roofer then proceeded to hound me and hound me and hounds me because he, the insurance company told him that they had sent out the first check. I just signed the first check over to him. I paid him the entire amount. Then he found out from the insurance company that they sent me the second check. I still didn't know that he fraudulently had said he did the work. I didn't know that the completion forms, I didn't find that out until all of this arguing started. And then I called the insurance company and they told me, and I told them that was incorrect. Why hadn't anyone contacted me? And then they took the agent that was handling the case. She left the company. So it kind of fell through the cracks. You know, he said, I want my money. I turned around and I said to the roofer, you can be paid for the roof. Now, I couldn't argue with him about that because everyone had agreed to the price of the roof, even though I confronted him with three separate estimates from three different contractors that the roof was literally, literally half of what he charged my insurance company. 50%. But the thing that really baffles me, though, is that you know, insurance companies are used to paying off claims like that. Did he indicate how big, the, how many square feet the roof was? He did. I don't know like a backdoor was, deal there. Maybe. 
Well, apparently you went to court because he was trying to sue you for that money, that work that he's never did. Yes. He kept hounding me. And then he said to me, have this adjuster call me so we could settle this. So I gave the adjuster his number and the adjuster told him he was breaking the law. The adjuster told him he was committing multiple counts of insurance fraud. And the next thing I know is I got a text message from this roofer telling me he was going to see me and this POS in court. The next thing I know, I was hit with legal papers and he sued me and I countersued him because when his roofers were here, they had damage done to my in some parts of my yard. So I countersued and then we went to court and in court, it was also gentlemen, for your listeners, I hope that they do their research. And all you need to do, what I discovered was contact the attorney general's office, make them supply you with your contractor's application form for their contracting license. Because at this particular time that this took place, I discovered that my wonderful contractor had a criminal record and was a convicted felon. He lied on the application for his contractor's license. And when I called, they told me that they don't vet the applications. So he wouldn't even have had a contractor's license had he answered the application truthfully. It's like the perfect storm. They don't vet the applications? (laughs) You could just lie. It's just writing something down. Lying under oath is basically what you're doing. (laughs) Well, what's nice about it was I got to be there, and I was just sitting in the back like a fly on the wall. When this guy was there? Yeah, I I want to learn how the criminals do it. And it was kind of funny laughing about some of the stuff that— stories that are making up but the judge was very good the judge knew what he was oh you mean you you went to the proceeding yeah i just wanted to see what would happen and i believe that he sued you for a certain amount of money and then you received double that back in the uh, final judgment it wasn't double it was not double and it wasn't for the exact thing but what he did do was he lied and he tried to as you know mr kennedy you saw him lie repeatedly because you had all of the paperwork you had all of the photos you had every single contract insurance form and what he did was he tried to take the money that he submitted for this siding work and for the ceiling repair in my bedroom which he was never ever supposed to do so it and then he combined that total amount. And then he proceeded to tell the judge that that money was for some step flashing, which we came to find out he didn't even know what the meaning of step flashing was due to the other contractor that showed up as a witness and to the public adjuster. And they both had to tell the judge that he didn't even know what the definition of step flashing was. So what he did was to the penny, he combined those two amounts of work he did not do, but he wanted money because he knew the insurance company had paid for it. And then he proceeded to say that it had something to do with the roof, which was completely incorrect. And it was a lie. It was a shakedown. And since then, because we live in neighboring towns, he and his wife have decided to accost me in restaurants. They've threatened me when they see me out in public. They've now taken to slanderous behavior and outright lies. They're angry he got caught. He sent the public adjuster text messages that said, it's my money and I want it. It's your money. It's your insurance money. And I believe I told you That's what the adjuster told him. That is exactly what the adjuster said. It's not your money. And he doubled down, dug his heels in and said, it's my money and I want it. I needed that money to repair the damages. And that is what I used it for. And I have receipts from the people that came and fixed it. 
Well, now you know my world. That's why we're trying here at the Your Valuable Home Podcast to teach our listeners that this is what you can run into. Trying to hire somebody reputable is the best thing to do. Well, I just hope that your listeners really contact their attorney general's office and review any applications and criminal records that these people may hold because a lot of other things came out. He stole the company from somebody else. It's a sordid story and it's a shame. And I just wish there was an easier way for the consumer to be able to protect themselves. And as you say, have reputable people doing work on their homes. Well, that's one of the things that we do. We educate people about these things and and your story helps us do that and other stories that we've had about horror stories all over the place. I'm glad that Mr. Kennedy was able to be in that courtroom. He had all of the paperwork. He had all of the files in his hands that he could review. And I'm so glad that you actually got to sit in court and watch the lies unfold from his mouth. It's good experience for me to know what the criminals are doing because I don't do work that way. So we don't do with anything with the insurance because I feel it's just a fraud thing to do. And that's why we had stayed out from the beginning. You know, for our listeners, just contact me here, Kevin, at yourvaluablehome.net, and we can help you through this process yeah. so it doesn't happen to you. And with a couple of days left in uh, 2023, I hope 24 is a much better year for you. I can't thank you enough, Mr. Kennedy. Okay, and listen, stick with us, especially if you are a young family and struggling to figure out how you're going to buy that first house. We have Ilya Asarov coming on. He's been on the show a number of times, and he's He's got some interesting advice for you. It might be possible to pull it off by buying land and building a house. All right, we'll be back after we take a quick break. Hey, Kev, we've talked many times about the importance of curb appeal and the value quality products add to exterior home improvements. Provia fiberglass entry doors and vinyl replacement windows add that value. And for huge impact, curb appeal, and value, there's Provia vinyl and polypropylene siding. Yep, the super polymer formulation of Provia siding reflects heat and protects against UV rays and solar heat buildup for lasting color and value. Provia siding comes in traditional, insulated, and decorative profiles, all with the look and texture of real wood. People often stop and ask me about my Provia Cedar Max siding. I've actually gotten siding jobs that way. Okay, so how about colors and styles? My customers love the extensive palette of popular colors, including dark and bold hues. New colors for 2023 include Miss Gray, Harvest Red, and Pine. And Provia offers a wide variety of styles from clapboard to Dutch lap, board and batten, and new Harbor Mill shingle and shake siding. Harbor Mill is reminiscent of traditional rough sawn shingle and staggered hand-split cedar shake. Both profiles are modeled after genuine cedar pieces using highly accurate laser scanning to ensure all the detail and texture of real cedar wood grain. Harbor Mill siding was designed with the installer in mind, incorporating built-in features that aid in a more efficient, hassle-free installation. The lightweight rigid panels are easier to handle and include locks, guides, and marks for the installer. That makes for a quicker installation and beautiful curb appeal. Yup, and you can see it all and have the colors and styles work with Provia entry doors and vinyl replacement windows at Provia's fabulous website, provia.com backslash YVH. Check out Provia's design center on the website and experiment with their exterior home visualizer to see how all the different styles, colors of Provia doors, windows, siding, stone, and roofing work together. Once again, Provia delivers on its mission to serve by caring for details in ways others won't. Visualize the possibilities at Provia.com backslash YVH. 
Okay, Ryan, continue with the great featured segment we have. Who do we got? Well, the great featured segment is with the great Ilya Azarov, founder of his own firm, Plus Lab Architect, current member of the AIA board, co-leader of what just ended, the AIA delegation to COP28, which is a little bit difficult this year. And that's the United Nations Climate Change Conference, which happens every year. This is the 28th one. The subject today, though, is building a home, a solution for first-time home buyers who've been sort of frustrated and bottled up by the seller's market that's been going on for the past couple of years and, and rising interest rates, too. Ilya, welcome back again to Your Valuable Homes. Great to have you here. Well, thanks, guys. It's great to be back. First of all, was progress actually made to help further the cause of combating climate change at COP28? My takeaways from COP, well, you know, there's several kind of ups and downs. It's like a roller coaster when you're there. Someday it feels like we're, we're really changing the world and making some great strides. And others, it felt like we were stuck in neutral. But I guess one of the major takeaways is the shift in global financing to adaptation, which is some of the things that we've talked about on this show. And building resilience around the world, even though it was announced at COP27 last year that there was a real major shift to really make communities and buildings much, much more resilient, it's finally taken hold. And you can see that shift moving along. So I'm really encouraged by that. You know, investing in communities, buildings, and infrastructure to meet these extreme climate impacts are really what we've got to get to. We do need to accelerate. Problems that we face, as you guys know, are pretty profound. So I, I, I do think we made progress on some of those days and some of the days still got to work on making progress. <laughs> when I see pictures of it, I say, thank goodness I'm not there. I can't imagine how you get all those people to agree on any one thing. It's tough. Having these engagements is really important. Getting agreements into action is where we've got to go. Well, my hat's off to you for doing it, doing wonderful work. So let's get to the big question for first-time homebuyers. Can it be cost-effective for a first-time homebuyer to purchase land and build a modestly-sized house that can be easily expanded as the family grows? Housing shortage all around the world. Many people are asking that exact question in two kind of ways. How do I find housing? And the other is, how can I afford it? And if you're in the U.S., I think it depends on, to your question, it depends on where you are. But first-time home buyers should really look into purchasing property as an option. Certainly avenues to get you moving that perhaps looking at these sort of different sort of smaller build-outs that you can then expand in the future give you some flexibility that you may not think about. You, you see a, a ready standing house. Well, that's a little out of my price range. Well, what if you looked at your price range and you could start with something a bit smaller or start with a, a property that may has, have a little bit of a knockdown on it that gives you the opportunity to move forward from there. Expanding over time is not new either, but as your family grows or maybe you turn it into a revenue generating property, those are all good things that can happen if you look at starting a piece of property. I think a lot of millennials today are not into deferred gratification because a lot of them grew up in big homes and they're used to the, the greater things in life. But you know what? We all had to be into deferred gratification to get to that point. And I think people have to start looking at life a little bit differently these days because life is different. So you think, yes, it's a viable possibility, right? Agreed. Yeah, I think it's uh, something worth really looking at. Are there any particular architectural genres that lend themselves best to expansion as a family needs grow? Over the history of the U.S. and, and things that we've brought with us as an immigrant nation, there's a lot of really good ones out there. And you probably see these every day. doesn't matter where you are in the U.S., but I'll give you a couple of examples. Historically, here in the Northeast, there's the salt box house. Now, this is a traditional starter home that's just a rectangle, single-story rectangle with an attic space, usually with a basement or a cellar. And this was built with the idea that you expand this with your family over time 
In fact, if you go around and take a look, you'll find very simple this very simple rectangle box with all these little pieces and elements added to it. And sometimes it's very hard to find the original small salt box house starter of that existing house. So typically you'd add a small wing uh, or perhaps a second floor by just elevating the roof lines, converting that attic, and then perhaps another wing out the back to make it a T-shape and plan, so on and so forth. I've seen examples in New England and throughout New Jersey and parts of Pennsylvania where you see eight or nine pieces added to the original salt box. And the same thinking goes into traditional farmhouses, say in the mid-Atlantic to the Midwest areas. Those were usually a square plan house with a covered porch. And that same sort of expansion idea as your multi-generational family expanded was really looked at. And then what we imported from overseas, I mean, the three-story row house, this is something that you see Philadelphia and New York City and Boston, all these places, those were made for multifamily living. I mean, you've heard this term, the mother-in-law floor. You know, you always had, you had an apartment that was where your in-laws would stay and they would help take care of the kids as they would grow up. And sometimes you'd even have another apartment in there that you'd have a housekeeper in that family that took care of the house for you or another revenue generating property. So there's a lot of history to this, but I'd say the salt box or the traditional square farmhouse really lend itself to this idea of expansion over time. What about regionally? What about the low country house? Yeah, low country house is a great example. It's the same concept. And climatically, they respond a little bit differently to the overhangs, uh, sun declination, all of those things. And in each of these places, you know, the, we've talked about this on this show a couple times in the past. These places were always built with no mechanical electric heating and cooling systems that you'd have. So they, they were climatically sort of intelligent. They would look at uh, where the breeze is coming from, where the sun is, and, and orientation of where the front porch is, and, and covered porch, and all of those pieces. So, yeah, another great example of a regional housing style that, that really would lend itself to this. Are there architectural styles that are preferred by millennials who represent a huge portion of the population today? Yeah. You know, millennials, they, they really seem to not be buying homes. And I think you described it briefly about the market. Their preference really is to lease or rent spaces. They really look at a premium on three things. One is privacy, one is convenience, and the other one is conservation, which is really good coming out of COP28, conservation of a lot of things. These seem to be the heart of the millennials' choices for housing. And location in the suburbs seems to be preferable as well, rather than being in a sort of downtown. Now, that's not a hard and fast rule, but it seems to be the trend around the country. Stylistically, there doesn't seem to be a one size or one style fits all with the millennials, but the sort of idea of privacy, convenience, conservation, and having some autonomy, self-standing house seems to be where a lot of these folks are heading. If you look at apartment dwellers in New York or Philadelphia or any big city, they get by with like two bedrooms, two baths, and they have a happy life and they don't think about anything else. But as soon as people start thinking about suburbs, got to have land, got to have a big house, big kitchen, got to have place for three dogs. Everything's big, big, big. Do you see that in your business? I do, but the quality construction that we go after, so you might have a higher initial cost, but your operation cost and over time, the return on investment for insurance and energy savings and all of those things. Look at the initial budget and most of my clients will decide for rather than watering down the quality of the construction, they will shrink the size of the house to start with, noting that they will be expanding. And that operation cost and the initial investment, they quickly recoup so they can actually build onto that house or expand later on. At least that's been our experience. Now, there are, you know, as you described, people want bigger places, but 
um, they can't afford the bigger places, especially what we're talking about with millennials. Yeah, it seems like in the last couple of years, there's been more of a gap between the haves and the have not. And to get into real estate has always historically been one of the ways people build wealth. You know, the average person builds wealth. It's getting harder and harder to do now. Everything we're talking about here is let's think out of the box, folks, and try something a little bit different. What is less costly to expand, a one-story house or a two-story house? Generally less costly, in, in my opinion, what we've seen is is from a one-story house versus the two-story house. But that's not a hard and fast rule. It, it depends on what where you're expanding and how you're expanding. The one-story house has this kind of ease of expansion for a couple of reasons. If you expand straight up, then you're not really looking at expanding any foundation or slab or anything like that. You're extending some of the services and interior, plumbing, electric, all of those things to do a second story. But if you're going horizontally, then you do have to contend with those other things. So if you have a two-story house to begin with, I think you're always expanding with foundation and slab and all of those things in mind. Whereas a one-story, you have this opportunity to go up and rely on some of those existing features to keep the cost lower in those cases. The other thing is if you go up instead of out and initially plan to do that at a later date, maybe you need less land too. Well, impervious coverage is usually what I run into is a lot of the homes today, depending on the size of the lot, where they want that extra space. Well, we don't have it with the foundation plot we can use. We'll have to go out and up. Well, you just went up when you built your uh, in-law suite, right? Uh, did, we did both. Did you, but okay. we, we encrenched into the uh, setback line. So we had to get a variance because we were three foot into the setback. Okay. But that's where we were maxed out at that point. But 90% of the stuff was up. I would imagine that the cost of building would vary significantly too, depending upon the region of the country, correct? It does. It does. Yeah. If you're if you're purchasing, oddly enough, an existing house, the least expensive housing states, from what I've seen, is West Virginia, Mississippi, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and a few others like Louisiana, Kentucky, Iowa. But if you're going to build, some of those are the same, it's just the order is a bit different. Mississippi has some of the lowest building costs, followed by West Virginia. Alabama, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Iowa, they're significantly lower than some places that, such as here in the Northeast. It does vary. And then it also varies on sort of the availability of land. So if you're in a heavy urban setting, that cost of just the property itself is, is going to vary quite greatly, depending on what services around you and things like that. But that's just in general around the country. You'll find areas, whole areas that are much less expensive to build in. What can a first-time homebuyer figure as a cost per square foot? Just, I don't want to put you on a spot, but just a range. It varies a great deal. Let's just take an example, like an average cost of a building, 2,000 to 2,100 square foot home. The average cost in the U.S., according to the latest data, is about $332,000 and some change, which is about $158 per square foot. But that varies greatly. That same building varies more than $140,000 across the states. So the average cost, say, for example, that same home in six states, all in the South, uh, Mississippi, Arkansas, Alabama, Louisiana, North Carolina, Florida, it's less than $300,000. Those are the same states that I mentioned earlier that it costs a lot less to build for the same square footage. But then if we go to the extreme, like Hawaii, Hawaii, that same 2,100 square foot home is 430000 plus. 205 a square foot. So you're looking at 158 as the average, 205 on the upper end, and then on, on the lower end, you're below 158. You're down in the 140 range. That's the variation across the U.S. It's got some heft in some places, especially Hawaii. So in other words, a young couple, first-time buyers, 
those states that you just mentioned, most of them are southern states, really have a leg up on life in terms of buying their first house, waiting for it to appreciate, moving up maybe to another house or expanding that house versus people who live in the east and certainly California. It definitely does. But remember that initial cost, you should be looking at your property taxes and all of the other utility costs and all of those things when you factor into it. Because certainly in some places, taxes are so much lower that you look at the ownership of a quarter acre or a half acre plot. You maybe end up paying an extraordinary amount over a 10 year period versus where you built other places. And so I think when we talk about initial costs, we also have to take a look at some of those other things, you know, taxes and all the other things that go into insurance costs, your exposure, all of those things. What are some cost-effective solutions for heating and cooling a home? First is is reducing your load by how you build. And that highly insulated towards passive house construction really get to that point where if you do have to heat or cool your home, it's you're just heating it a little bit and cooling it a little bit. It takes very little in either direction, but once you've reduced that load through the construction process or the quality of construction, as well as your doors and your windows, then you can look at things like these geothermal wells or um, ground source heat pumps or air source heat pumps. Those seem to be in this sort of place where they're recognized as really high performance. And currently, it seems like there's a lot of incentives across the U.S. through the Inflation Reduction Act. A lot of states are really moving towards getting people to retrofit their existing homes and when you're doing new builds to really look at the heat pump technology to really rely on on that as a, a really good cost savings and energy savings. The ground source heat pumps, isn't it the ground like in a basement or whatever, isn't it a constant 56 degrees? It is, yeah. So once you get below a certain depth, and that varies depending on where you're in the U.S., but generally like here in the Northeast, you get down below 10, 12 feet, you are circulating at 56 degrees. When you have 56 degrees and it's 100 degrees outside, boy, that 56 degrees constant allows you to use air conditioning or cool your home. And that is what the, the Earth's temperature is. And similarly, when it's zero degrees outside, you're circulating that up from the Earth and the Earth starts you out at a base of 56 degrees rather than going from the zero outside and trying to heat that up to heat your house. And so it makes a lot of sense. So then reverse of that, you're only heating to wherever you want to be from 56 on up to 65, 70, whatever. Exactly. So you only need to get up to 20 degrees for cooling. Yeah, you're bringing the temperature down pretty rapidly. But yes. You were involved or you still are involved in experiments in New York State with heat pumps in basically what? Low-rise residential, right? Yes. Are those ground source heat pumps? Yes, they are. We've chose to go with ground source heat pumps. In most of these cases, when we go further upstate, air source heat pumps, uh, we have not used them, but a lot of our colleagues are using them. And if we have some projects coming further upstate, we would take a look at that and see, see if that makes a lot of sense. To me, that constant temperature, the ground source heat pump makes a lot of sense. So just technologically and ideologically for a passive house condition, if everything fails and you can still have, have that comfortable envelope, that heat pump will keep you very, very comfortable. The very last, your thermal comfort is taken care of with that one device, heating and cooling. Kind of the same principle as solar and wind. You're letting mother nature do a lot of the work. Right on. That's what we need to do is align with those things. Definitely save a lot of folks a lot of heartache and and easy on the pocketbook. Yeah, I like what you said about the building the envelope of the house. No matter how great of a heat pump you have, uh, if you don't have the proper insulation, the outside element is going to get inside your house a lot easier. Like in an attic, if you don't have proper insulation in your attic, you have an yeah, R20. That's got to be a given, right? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, because there's no way any heat pump, when I tell people that when you have a higher degree upstairs, is because if you have 
R20 insulation up in your attic where you should have R49 or R60, that heat is penetrating through that ceiling. And that's why you're not achieving that degree you want to get up there because the heat pump has to work so hard to get it, which then raises the cost of your fuel bill. Right. So the electrical exactly. that's going to be there. Exactly. Yeah. So it all starts with that insulation. It, it's got to be there properly installed with, you said, the windows and doors and the proper insulation and, and how tight the house is. If that can be stopped the air from coming in, uh, doing that job, it's a lot less stress on the load of the heat pump. Does a basement or a slab make it more or less costly to heat and cool a home? It kind of depends, but generally there's a couple of good things about having a basement or cellar. You know, all the infrastructure that comes into the house, all the mechanical infrastructure, electric systems, water, you know, wastewater, as well as potable water coming in, you have to have access to those things. So thinking about that and because you're in the earth, you have that constant temperature around you, you have an area of the house that remains relatively cool or relatively warm. And that can be a real good part of how you heat and cool your home, how you locate your heat pump and and really get things moving in the right direction. But the other thing about it is in most parts of the U.S., that cellar space in terms of construction is some of the least costly of your construction to build out. Digging a hole in the ground and getting proper insulation and getting those walls up is pretty inexpensive when it comes down to the cost of construction relatively to the rest of the house. So there's a lot of benefits to really looking at that. Now, some places have high water tables and it doesn't make sense to do that there. But again, for the infrastructure and your heating and cooling, you probably want to have a crawl space. If you do a slab straight on grade, look at your other measures for resilience, are you in a flood zone? You may want to lift up. If you do have all of your mechanicals and everything running under the slab and something does go wrong, you do have to bust up your slab to get at it in some cases. So those become some of the things. So I look at, it's sort of like the access closet. Think about that as a big one for your basement, your cellar, or your crawl space. Whatever's under the hood or accessibility, all that equipment is accessible and therefore saves you cost in terms of maintenance and all those things. But for heating and cooling, definitely the basement is beneficial to that, in my opinion, and how the thermal dynamics of a building works. If it's a large building, you could use that as a plenum, an air plenum, and take relatively cool air to circulate through the rest of the house as part of your strategy for heating and cooling space. So there's a lot of good to it. Can resilience be built into a first-timer's house at a reasonable cost? So we're talking about ground source heat pump, all these great things. Can you do it in a cost-effective way if you don't have a lot of money to do that? The short answer is yes. When you're doing a build of a new place, there's a couple of things you have to look for that don't cost extra. And there's really good guidance for this. The Federal Alliance of Safe Homes has a great builder's guide. What you're looking for is continuous load path, that the roof, the walls, and the foundation are connected properly together. So they act against wind forces and hurricane forces and other things that might affect the building negatively from that aspect. And those are really pretty easy to do. If the builder is knowledgeable and you have this guidance, he or she's gonna be able to achieve those things. But then the other things that do cost more money are that increase in insulation, that those beyond code measures, making sure you're getting the proper windows and doors that perform for the thermal side, but also for high impact or high wind elements. And then, of course, the other thing that doesn't cost all that much is recognizing where you're building. Are you in a flood zone? Do you have to elevate the building to operate properly? And when you build, how high do you build for that first floor above ground? And that's rather important. Ultimately, those things are your decisions. So can you do that reasonably? If you do your research, yes. Does it cost more to build a resilient, sustainable home in the marketplace? 
Yes, it does. But your return on investment is extraordinary in a very short amount of time. And if you look at staying in the house, if you build a smaller house and then add to it as years go by, if you look at staying there, the earnout on that probably outlive the earnout, right? Yeah. There's a lot of good options with that too. You know, you could be in a position where you develop it into an extra room where you rent out sort of a duplex condition if that works or an ADU and, you know, a, a, a smaller secondary building on the on the site creates more economy for you. Or as you build out this place with your family, it also increases value that you will have in resale later on if it's done right. It makes things doable for a young family. I think so. I think so. You know, there's always the bank of mom and dad to help you. Yeah, bank, we've heard of that. We've heard about that. And I think a bank of mom and dad has been really at work over the last couple of years, too. They're probably drained of cash at this point. Agreed. Are there any government incentives for anything that we're talking about here? What's come forward is certainly for the heat pumps and the geothermal, that's been coming forward. Retrofit of existing housing, and there's been a great deal of incentives currently under the Inflation Reduction Act for um, climate infrastructure and housing. And very state to state, for example, here in New York State, there's a $10,000 incentive for putting in the ground source heat pumps. And so there's a big move towards it for housing. That's an incredible incentive. There's also incentives for solar panels, some battery backup incentives in a few states as well. And then simple things like rainwater capture. If you're thinking about sustainability, there certainly is an incentive here in New York City in the five boroughs. And there's some in other places in the U.S. that are trying to increase capacity for the whole community when it comes to intensive rainstorms. So there are incentives incentives if you really take time to look for energy and power production, storage, and some of the other resilient things that, and the sustainable things that you want to put together. What's the rule of thumb for the cost of the services of an architect? Wow. You know, it depends on the services that are provided. If you're just looking for someone to help you with the design and filing, or do you want someone to help you overseeing the project or specifying your furnishings, your fixtures, and your finishes, that varies quite a bit throughout the U.S. So there is no sort of one size fits all, but uh, it depends on the services that an architect would provide. But my advice would be is to consult with a, a licensed design professional as you move towards this, as well as a, a really good quality builder, someone who has really good reputation because he or she is going to help you and the design professional really get to the place where you're going to be and ultimately save you money in the process. Well, again, I mean, every time you come on, I feel a lot smarter. I mean, it, it all comes together. Yeah, he's going mind. to start his own business very soon. You're going to start your own contracting <laughs> business soon. No, you don't want to see that happen. <laughs> you should, man. <laughs> I'll think about it. Hey, listen, this has been fantastic. I hope it's helpful to, and it should be, to a lot of young people out there who are struggling with, can we afford a house? Can we do it? Should we do it? And the answer is probably yes. You could do it this way. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Remember the name Provia, your single source for professional class, entry doors, storm doors, patio doors, vinyl and wood clad vinyl windows, vinyl siding, manufactured stone and metal roofing, products made with latest technology and honest old world craftsmanship, the Provia way. That's this week's podcast. If you want us to share your home improvement project or horror story, email me at kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. That's kevin at yourvaluablehome.net. And don't forget to tell your friends and family about Your Valuable Home, the weekly podcast that's all about building wealth in residential real estate and hiring the right contractor to do the right job at the right price. 